at the beginning of the series on Revelation, we made the point that Revelation is indeed a revelation of Jesus Christ, that the book intends to unveil, that it doesn't intend to be obscure or difficult, and in fact that there's a blessing attached to this book and this book alone, merely for reading it and for keeping it. And so we argued and we've argued a bit since then that the book is accessible. Yes, the book places some demands on us at points, but it was not given to be a puzzle or a riddle or an unsolvable mystery. It is a revelation. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Albeit one that comes at points with challenges. Well, chapter 11 is one of those challenging places. It's one of those places where the book does place some demands on us. So it's important to remember where we are in the book. We're in the interlude still between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And last week, in chapter 10, we saw that John was given and he ate the scroll. Same scroll that the lamb took and unsealed in chapter 5. And then John was told that he has to prophesy to nations and peoples and languages and kings. So this text then in chapter 11 is the beginning of John's prophesying. This is the first result of eating the book. And so we'll look at the text under four headings. They're there in your bulletin. The temple, the numbers, The witnesses and the testimony. Temple number, witnesses, and testimony. So first, the temple. John is given a measuring rod, or a reed, and he's told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and to count, or also to measure, those who worship there. And so the temple here means the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. You have to recall the architecture of the Old Testament temple. Because the text makes it clear that what John is to measure does not include the outer court. And so this vision, heavenly vision of a temple being measured, is drawing on Ezekiel, the latter chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48. The prophet has this vision of the coming everlasting temple. And there are measurements given. And it anticipates what we see at the end of the book of Revelation. Where the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of God with man, is measured. Dimensions are given in some detail. And so measuring in those contexts, means marking off the holy people as secure, protected, as the place where God dwells in the Spirit. And that's what measuring means here. This is confirmed by verse 2, where the part of the temple that's not measured is thus not protected, and it's given over to the nations or the Gentiles To be trampled. So measuring means protecting the saints. 
Now, so what we have here in this interlude is really parallel to what we saw in the last interlude in the seals. Between the sixth and seventh seal, the saints were sealed and they were numbered. They were marked off as God's holy people. Same thing is going on here. So this is a symbolic action that John's engaged in, a prophetic action. And it involves entities which are depicted symbolically. We should, we should not be um, derailed by this because chapter 1, verse 1, the book tells us that Jesus signified this book to John. He gave it in signs. So, when John is told to measure the temple of God, notice this in the text, the altar and those who worship there. Notice that. He's not measuring the physical temple in Jerusalem. Either before 70 AD or some future rebuilt temple. The temple in Revelation is always the church seen in her heavenly existence. That's why at the end of the book, the temple church comes down out of heaven. Right At the end of the book, John is told, come, I'll show you the wife, the bride of the Lamb. And she descends because the church has her being in heaven. She is in Christ. She is raised with Him. She is seated with Him. This should make sense to us. We've already seen this altar. The altar's in heaven, and it's the place where the martyrs wait for vindication, where they cry out, how long? And so measuring the temple and measuring the altar are basically the same thing as what the end of verse 1 calls measuring or counting those who worship there. The church. The people who dwell in the heavenly temple. In chapter 13 of Revelation, the beast, the great beast of the book of Revelation, who, by the way, will appear for the first time in chapter 11. The beast is said to blaspheme God's name and his dwelling. And there in chapter 13, the text says that blaspheming God's dwelling means blaspheming those who dwell in heaven. You are God's dwelling. You dwell in heaven. So, to sum this up, what's being measured and protected is the church in her heavenly reality. The people whose identity and being is the heavenly temple. Your space is in Christ in the heavenly temple. That is the space you inhabit. Then, in verse 2, the court outside the temple is not to be measured. It's given over to the nations and they trample the holy city for 42 months. Again, as an aside, this does not correspond to the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. There the whole temple was destroyed. Here, just the outer court is destroyed. In fact, the whole city was destroyed there. So what does it mean 
What does the text mean when it says the outer court is trampled by the nations, while the, the inner sanctuary and those who dwell there are measured and protected? It's a difficult text. It means that as the church, you and I in our heavenly dimension are safe, nevertheless in our outward reality, we are subject to suffering and persecution. So what's being seen here is the church in its twofold dimension, earthly and heavenly. In one sense, the heavenly sense, the church is protected. In the other, she is trampled. In one sense, it's much like your experience as a Christian where Paul says, your outer man, your outer estate is decaying. It's being corrupted. It's being trampled by time. But your inner man is being renewed day by day. So the church is measured, protected, safe as the heavenly temple of God in Christ. And yet in history, she is trampled by the nations. That's the temple. Second point here are the numbers. Revelation has, you may have noticed, a lot of numbers. And, and getting them right, or at least what, what I think is right, is very important. Um, this, this trampling of the outer court, the visible church, occurs for 42 months. This is a symbolic Number It derives from Daniel. And Daniel speaks of this end time persecution of the saints, which in Daniel lasts for a time, times, a time, and then two more times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Three and a half years, 42 months. And Revelation also as verse 3 shows, speaks of this period as 1,260 days. That's 42 months of 30 days. All of these designations, time, time, half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days, they all refer to the same period of time. And three and a half is a broken seven. So three and a half years is a snapped Sabbath cycle. It's a symbol of suffering, sadness, tribulation, brokenness, failure, weakness, short of the coming Sabbath full glory. And so in Revelation, this, this, um, these periods, not a special, literal three and a half years at some future point in history. This is the period of the church's witness. We see that here in verse 3. She bears witness for 42 months. How long is the church measured and protected as the heavenly temple? For her whole earthly existence. That's the period of time that she's trampled then. In chapter 12, we'll see it's the period of time that the church is nourished and protected in the wilderness so the satanic dragon cannot destroy her. How long does the church war with the principalities in power? How long is the church in the wilderness before the coming glory? The answer, her whole history. In chapter 13, this time period is the time period where the beastly powers wage war against God and his saints. 
And so this time period in its various forms refers to the time of the church's measured, sealed, protected witness in which it faces the trampling satanic powers in the earth. And so again, it's important to get this in its various forms. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. This means the whole history of the church. As the visible witnessing church, as the holy city, even though protected as the heavenly temple, we are nonetheless resisted and even trampled by the powers of the earth. So that's the numbers. The third point are these witnesses. In verse 3, Christ speaks and he says, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So if we're right about the 1,260 days, the three and a half years, this means these witnesses prophesy for the whole period of the church's suffering witness. They, They prophesy for the whole time the church is in the wilderness. The whole time she's opposed by the beast. And these witnesses as the sackcloth indicates, are in mourning. They're in mourning. They have a repentant frame of mind, these witnesses. They mourn for the state of the world. They mourn over the state of the church. They testify to these judgments that God pours out, and they call the nations to repent. Sackcloth, sackcloth is a fundamental irreplaceable piece of clothing for the church in history. The church witnesses as a sackcloth-wearing people. Now, since this period, this period of trampling, the period of prophesying, the period of measured protection of the church, they are all identical. Those periods are the same. Right? There's three things going on here. The church is measured and protected. The church is trampled and are out with a state. And there's witness bearing going on. Those three things are all referring to the same time period, the whole history of the church. And if that's true, then these cannot be two individual witnesses. The two witnesses represent the prophetic witness of the church to the nations. Right? What they show is that John's commission to eat the scroll and to prophesy to the nations is going to be carried out by the prophetic witness of the church. John eats, we eat. What John does, we're called to do. So you have these two witnesses. The whole church, then, measured and protected, same time suffering and trampled. Another way to think of this is, in addition to thinking of it in terms of your outer man decays and your inner man is renewed, we can think of this in terms of the New Testament teaches us that we are both crucified with Christ and risen with Christ at the same time. You're not partially crucified with Jesus and partially risen. You're completely, Paul says, we are crucified with Christ. He also says, we are risen with Christ. So it's perfectly 
in accord with Revelation for the church to be in this situation. And these witnesses here, they prophesy for the same period of time that the holy city, the visible church. By the way, the holy city in the book of Revelation never refers to Jerusalem. It always refers to the church. And these witnesses prophesy for the whole time that the holy city is opposed or trampled. So the two witnesses, verse 4 says, There are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. As if there hasn't been enough numbers and challenges, the two witnesses are two olive trees. Those come from Zechariah chapter 4. In other words, John is drawing on the prophets. They represent Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the ruler. And thus, the, the two olive trees represent the priestly and kingly aspects of the church. John's already said, you're a kingdom of priests. And the two olive trees are two lampstands. Well, the church has already been depicted as lampstands in chapter 1. That's because we bear light and the anointing of the Spirit for witness. And so the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, they stand for the light-bearing, Spirit-empowered, anointed witness of the church in history. And the reason there are two, you might think, and not seven, remember there were seven lampstands earlier in the book, the seven churches of Asia Minor, It's not that they represent a part of the church. There are two lampstands here because two is the biblical number required for judicial witnesses in order for judgment to be passed. Everything the law says has to be established by the mouth of two witnesses. That's why there's two. And they stand before the Lord of all the earth, the text says. And that indicates that they have a universal character. And a witnessing mission. They are a picture of your calling. They're not strange, apocalyptic figures of the future coming down from the sky. They are what you are. An anointed, oil-bearing, light-bearing, burning people. To bear witness in the midst of the tramplings of the bestial powers that are astride in the earth. And so the fourth point then is their testimony. Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. They can't be harmed because they're measured and protected. They're not some sort of weird, immortal creature in the sense that their bodies can't be trampled. They are the church which has its being in heaven. And their lampstands... And lampstands have fire burning on them. Fire comes from their mouths. This here is the fire of the Spirit, the fire of the Word of God, which is the witness that they give. You might remember Jeremiah was, he said the prophetic word that God had given him was like a consuming fire in his mouth. This is why the fire comes from the witnesses' mouths. It's a legal pronouncement of the coming judgment. It's a call to repent. 
And when this fire is embraced, it purifies, it refines, it heals, it glorifies, it transfigures. And when this fire is resisted, as here, it consumes the foes of the church. So if it needs saying, this is not a literal fire. Just as the sword which proceeds from Christ's mouth is not a literal sword. Just as Jesus is not a literal lamb that was slain. And so on. And in fact, to think of it as a literal fire is to make the mistake of Jesus' disciples who wanted to call down literal fire from heaven and consume those who rejected Jesus. Jesus didn't, um, didn't look kindly on that, let's say. They suffered his rebuke. So it's not a literal fire, but it is fire and it is lethal. That's the key point. Verse 5 says, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. If you reject the prophetic witness of the church, you are placed now already under the fiery judgment, the doom which is to come. This is what the church proclaims. How could the church proclaim anything else? If we proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that means we proclaim the judgment and the renewal of the world. And so this fire confronts every man, woman, and child. This fire is either going to transfigure you and irradiate you with glory, or it's going to consume you. You can see in verse 6 that this witness of the church, it's modeled on the the witness of Elijah and, and Moses. They have power to shut the sky so no rain falls during the time they are prophesying. Elijah shut heaven for three and a half years, literally in his case. And Elijah's already been alluded to, because you'll remember, Elijah called down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. And fire comes out of the mouths of the two witnesses here. So the drought and the fire, they seem to stem from Elijah. The next two items in verse 6, they come from Moses' ministry. Power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues. A couple of quick things here. Again, this is not speaking about a literal return of Moses and Elijah. Or even two figures like them. Remember Jesus said, John the Baptist was Elijah. People were expecting Elijah to return. John the Baptist came and Jesus says, John the Baptist, he was Elijah. And what the Lord meant was, he was Elijah Because he came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. That's what's happening here. The church's prophetic witness partakes of the spirit and the power of Moses and Elijah. Of the law and the prophets. Notice in the text, all four powers, fire, drought, blood, plague. All four are attributed to both prophets. They're not split up between them. They are both, if you will, figuratively Moses and Elijah. You don't have Moses here and Elijah here. We're being told that the whole church, the lampstand people, the oil-bearing people, the people with the fiery word of God in their mouths, the whole church is like Moses and Elijah. The apostolic gospel fulfills the law and the prophets. And this is particularly relevant to us. You might think, How is this relevant? Well, both 
John is using Moses and Elijah because they were both prophets and they both confronted pagan rulers, bestial pagan states, pagan religion. <coughs> and that's precisely the situation that the church finds itself in throughout Revelation and often in her history. So they're very relevant. If you're a first century Christian in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire is starting to demand that you burn a little incense to Caesar or we take your job or we put you in jail or we expropriate your property. Well, then all of a sudden Moses is witness to Pharaoh and Elijah's witness in his pagan environment or corrupted environment becomes very relevant to you and your witness. So, the church is at war. She's dressed in sackcloth, though. And in the midst of this, she speaks. And her word confronts. It even topples. It even consumes nations. The church is not called to a pleasant task. You know Isaiah's call to the ministry, where Isaiah is told by the Lord, here's your calling. Go and prophesy to these people for your whole adult life. No one will pay any attention to you. You can read this in Isaiah chapter 6. They'll harden. They won't turn. They won't listen. You keep talking. And Elijah says to the Lord, how long do I have to do this for? And the Lord says, until the cities are desolate. Until the land is burned. Until the invasion comes. Until the whole place is scorched. Have a happy ministry, Elijah. Right? I'm in Isaiah. I keep getting. But the point is, the church is not called to measure things the way the world measures them. You are called to bear witness, to speak in a context that may or may not give you affirmative feedback. But this is the task. And so this means we are standing against all empires, including where need be the American Empire. All empires that oppose the empire of Jesus Christ. Now, these signs here are certainly not to be taken literally either. The two witnesses here are something of a parable. But again, it doesn't mean that extraordinary judgments do not attend the preaching and the witness of the church. Remember, we're inside the trumpet judgments here. We've already established that judgments are poured out. They're poured out in response to the church's prayers offered as incense. We saw that in chapter 8. But notice this. In the midst of that scene, the world doesn't just have bare judgments. It will have the verbal witness, the speaking, the teaching, the proclamation, the repentant mourning and prayers of the church. The fiery, light-giving gospel. So let let me conclude. This is a difficult passage. Um, If it's any comfort, the next passage is awful difficult. (laughs) Next week. There's a few difficult chapters. There's 22 chapters in the book. Three or four of them are hard. Um, The church, you are protected in history. But not in your outward estate. Not even in our bodily existence. Jesus said, don't worry about those who can kill the body. 
That's the same thought from Jesus as you see in this text. We are protected as the people who dwell in Christ, and Christ is at the right hand of God. We dwell in the temple. We're offered up on that heavenly altar under which are the martyrs. God's witness protection program does not guarantee your bodily safety. You get put in this witness protection program and the officer tells you now they might come in and kill you. We can't protect you from that. But you're measured, sealed, protected. And you're protected for one purpose. That's it. The church doesn't have an array of purposes. It has one basic purpose. Faithful, suffering, servant, sackcloth-clothed witness to the nations. And this is an effective witness. It kills those, the text says, who assault the church and who resist the witness. It's not an arrogant witness, though. It's a grieving, sackcloth-clothed witness. That's the source of the fire here. It's fire that comes from the mouths of those who are dressed in sackcloth. Churches that don't that have no sackcloth, are corruptors of the gospel. Right? These words sealed up for John to eat contain in the prophets many words of lamentation and mourning and woe. The blessedness of the church is the blessedness of those who mourn. And again, it's another paradox You can be trampled in your outward estate and perfectly safe. Your outer man can decay. Your inner man can be renewed. You can be crucified with Christ and raised to Christ. You can be blessed in mourning. And Jesus, again, is the model here. I love Hebrews chapter 1, where we're told that Jesus, the man of griefs, acquainted with sorrow. I mean... You carefully read Jesus, the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels, right? He's not a jovial chap, right? You get this, right? I remember I have an aunt who's now a believer, but when she wasn't a believer 30 years ago, and I was the only believer in the family, and my Italian family was gathered around the table in an inquisition of me, Right? And my aunt was there, my grandparents were there, and they wanted to know about this. And my aunt says, I remember this distinctly. She says, you know, when I read the Gospels, Jesus is always mad. And I thought, you know, she's actually reading these things. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is not appearing on any late night talk shows. He is a sober character in the Gospels. He's a sober character with a sober mission. He's a man of grief. He's acquainted with sorrow. He's bearing and paying the price for your liberation from the moment he's incarnate. And yet, he is also called the man who's anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his companions. He is both the most sorrowful and sober human being and the most glad and joyful human being in one. And in that is the paradox of the church's witness. No sackcloth, 
no joy. Churches think we can skip the sackcloth and go straight to the joy part. No sackcloth, no joy. No witness. Churches are measured by the opposition they evoke, by the enemies they make. Again, we should not be offensive. But we cannot escape the fact that Jesus is a stumbling block, an offense. And we often forget this. So this is a sober text, but it is a high, hopeful text. It says that your calling is to bear witness to the nations in the midst of the trumpet judgments. That your calling is mosaic and Elijianic. This is why you eat the book. This is why you pray for the Spirit. Because you're a lampstand and you're an olive tree. And a kind of, in spite of all of our weakness and all of our frailty and all of our foibles and all of our inadequacy, a kind of fire is to pour forth from our mouths and from our sackcloth clothed witness. This is the way, we'll see this next week, this is the way that God vindicates his glory and his name in the earth. This is the way he topples and redeems empires. This is the way the mystery announced in the prophets shall be accomplished. And it's this company of people and those who respond to this fire whom the Lord vindicates in the end. Amen.